0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Brian Sams Podcast. This is your host, Brian Sams. I'm solo in the studio today because today I'm not doing an interview. I'm actually sharing with you a message that was preached on December the 2nd at River City Baptist Church. It was part one of a two-part series on bibliology. Now I want to tell you, as you listen to this, be aware that for several months I led the men of our church, through a discussion on bibliology, ultimately letting them know that I felt it was time for our church to use a newer translation of the Bible for our preaching ministry, and we chose to use the New King James for various reasons that you'll hear in these episodes. But I wanted to lead our church through a series on bibliology to teach them what the Bible actually says about itself leading them to the conclusion that we felt like it was the best thing for our church to use a modern translation of the Bible. This message that you're about to listen to is entitled The Seven Wonders of the Word. We talk about inspiration, revelation, we talk about translation, preservation, uh, and inerrancy, and some of the basic Uh, truths of God's Word. I would encourage you to pay real close attention to the end of the message when I talk about the difference between preservation and translation, which is commonly misunderstood by Bible uh, teachers. And I pray this will be an encouragement to you. If nothing else, it'll be a wonderful reminder of how awesome it is to have God's Word in our hands. And now, let's go to the sermon entitled, The Seven Wonders of the Word. Uh, If you don't have the doctrine of Scripture right, then you won't have anything else right. The most striking feature of the church of Jesus Christ is that we are fundamentally people of the book. You say, well, uh, why do you do what we do on Sunday? I mean, don't you know… How many other churches are doing A, B, C, and D on Sunday? And my answer is, it really doesn't matter to me because what really matters to me is that I am doing at this church what a church is supposed to be doing, and what a church is supposed to be doing is being a pillar and the ground of the truth. What we're supposed to be doing is declaring the Word of God, and I mean, we have church services that last roughly 55 minutes here, okay, and about… 35 to 40 of those minutes are completely devoted to the teaching of the Bible. So it's not like there's an hour-long concert and then there's a 15-minute message. We basically come in here and we sing and I get down to preaching, okay? Now, I do that on purpose because we believe in the value of the Word of God. And so it's very important that every Christian from... From the newest believer to the most seasoned Christian knows what the Bible is and knows why it is so important. So I'd like you to take your Bible tonight and turn to Psalm 119, and we're going to turn to a few other places tonight, but I want to start here because it really sets the theme for what I want to say tonight. Most of you know, no doubt, if you're here on a Wednesday night, Psalm 119 is a psalm that is the largest chapter in the Bible and predominantly every verse in the chapter says something about the Bible. And so it is the Psalm of the Word. And it is a Hebrew acrostic uh, that is laid out. If you notice uh, in the Psalm 119, there's these little sections and they have Hebrew words that nobody can pronounce. And that is the Hebrew alphabet. It is a Hebrew poem that is built on an acrostic, and every section has something to do with a subject about the Bible that relates to that Hebrew letter or starts with that Hebrew letter. But I'm going to read one verse, verse 161 of Psalm 119, and it says this. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. And I've labeled this lesson tonight the seven wonders of the word. Truly, the Bible should strike in the heart of every child of God a sense of great respect, awe, wonder, and reverence. Now, when we approach the Bible, I want to start by telling you what the Bible actually is, okay? The Bible is God's Word, okay? It was given to us by God, and I'll show you Scripture references about that in just a moment, but let me give you a little bit about the makeup of the Bible so that you really kind of get your mind and heart around, like, the totality of the Bible. The Bible was written by God through human instruments over the course of 1,500 years. The first writer of the Bible was Moses. The last writer of the Bible was the Apostle John. And over 1,500 years with a 400-year break after Malachi, God used nearly 60 different human instruments to produce a book that was individually given and over time was collated into a book that we now have wrapped in leather on our laps called the Bible the first set of books are the books of Moses Genesis through Deuteronomy and the Bible in the Old Testament has 39 books the New Testament has 27 books And the amazing thing about the Bible is, although the first writer of the Bible wrote 1,500 years prior to Jesus being born, the last writer in the Bible wrote 100 years uh, after the life of Christ or the birth of Christ in about A.D. 95 to A.D. 100, the amazing unity, precision, and doctrinal integrity of the Bible make it a book of its own. Thirty-nine books in the Old Testament, starting with Genesis, ending in Malachi. And those Old Testament books are broken down into four major sections, okay? There is, first of all, the law of God. The law of God was given from God to Israel, and that is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Genesis is the founding of the people of God through Abraham, predominantly, and the creation of the world. It's the creation of the world, the creation of God's people. And then through the book of Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, God gives those people a law. Prior to entering into the promised land, he restates that law to them in the book of Deuteronomy, which means second law or the second given of the law. So you've got the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then you have a group of, of, of books called the, writing, the writings or the prophets, or some people would call it the historical section of the Bible. That's going to be, of course, Joshua through 2 Chronicles, Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra, and then all of the Old Testament prophets that go with those historical accounts. This is why Jesus calls it the prophets, because the messages were given by prophets, the Bible was recorded by the prophets. And the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and so on, those were men who preached the word during the historical accounts of Joshua through Esther. So that's the prophets. The final section is Jesus called it Psalms or David or the writings, and that would be what we also call the poetical section. Of the Old Testament, that's going to be Job, which is entirely written in poetic form, Uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, and uh, did I forget one? Song of Solomon, I guess. Yeah, Song of Solomon. So that section of book is a poetical section. It's uh, it's written predominantly by David and Solomon. There were other writers, Moses, Asaph, and some but those are the emotional, if you will, section of the Old Testament. It's written in emotional language. It's written in poetic language, but that was the construct. Remember this, the Old Testament is not giving, frankly, the Old Testament or the New Testament is not given chronologically. It was given categorically. So, That's why you have it in sections. It's not necessarily in chronological order. There are books that have been compilations called chronological Bibles, ones like the Reese's Chronological Bible, that would would actually show you how the Bible lays out chronologically. And it's a really interesting way to read the Bible. But you need to understand that the Bible was given categorically. So then when you come to the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament break down like this. You've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John then you have the book of Acts which is the historical narrative of the apostles and the founding of the church then after Acts you've got a series of books that we call the epistles or the letters starting in Romans ending in Jude most of them are written by Paul the apostle Uh, that is uh, basically Romans all the way through Hebrews or just before Hebrews depending on how you cut it and then we have a section of right of epistles called the general epistles, and that's going to go from Hebrews to Jude. Again, the Bible was put together categorically, not chronologically. So that is the makeup of the Bible. It is 37, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, combining into 66 total books that in time, after they were finished, were all collated and put together in the book that we have in our hands the Bible calls scripture or the writings or the word of God and that's why it is so important that you and I understand what it is because it was given to us from God and it's therefore God's word to us today and it should become the greatest pursuit of any Christian in the world to know to understand. believe and to live out whatever the Bible teaches us so tonight I want to take that foundation and I want to lay out for you the seven wonders of God's word okay number one number one the first thing that you need to know about the Bible is that the Bible reveals God to us the Bible reveals God to us That word would be the word revelation. The Bible is God's revelation to us. Now, when I speak of the word revelation in the Bible, it simply means this it means God making something known to us that would otherwise be unknown or unknowable. It's called revelation. Now, in Scripture, God reveals Himself to people in different ways. There are general ways that God reveals himself to people. For instance, Romans 1 says that God reveals himself to us through creation. God, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day utter speech and night the night shows knowledge. Uh, the Bible reveals, or excuse me, God reveals himself to us through our conscience, our moral nature. Romans chapter 2, it's the law of God written in our hearts. The fact is, you can know about God without a Bible, but you cannot know God without the Bible. So, general revelation means I might know there is a God, but the Bible will show me who that God is. Uh, General revelation will show me that there is a God out there, but God's Word will show me how I get to that God. So it's very important to understand that nobody comes to faith in God. Nobody knows who the person of Jesus Christ is. Nobody receives salvation apart from the word of God. Romans ten seventeen says it like this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God. Folks, listen, why is the Bible so important? The Bible is important because everything God wants you to know about Him, everything God wants you to know about His Son, everything God wants you to know about life, about godliness, about eternity, is in the Bible. And what you need to know about God is in the Bible. Folks, listen, you can sit around and cross your legs and hum and you know, hold your hands like this and think about God all you want to, but you're not going to know God. God is not known by emptying your mind. God is known by filling your mind with His Word. And if you want to be close to God, you've got to know the Bible. If you want to know the way to God, you got to know the Bible. If you want to know what God wants for your life, you have to know the Bible. And so, the first fundamental thing you need to understand that the Bible is so important in your life is simply because the Bible reveals God to us. That is revelation. Now, I'm gonna go on to number two because number two, I'm gonna spend more time here than probably any other thing that I say tonight and that is number two, the Bible was recorded by man but given by God. That word is the word inspiration. Now, inspiration, folks, I believe, is the single most important word that you could ever understand as it relates to the Bible. So, everybody turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to read to you verse number 16. Folks, listen, if there is a verse in the Bible that teaches you what the Bible is, it teaches you what the Bible means, It teaches you how important the Bible is. It is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, which says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto every man good work. And I want to zero in on that first phrase for a minute. I want you to understand with no question in your mind tonight, when I'm talking about the book, I'm not talking about Reader's Digest, and I'm not talking about uh, the USA Today, and I'm not, I'm not talking about some, you know, book written by John Calvin or some uh, uh, church's story. I'm talking tonight about the book of all books that was given to you directly from God. So look at the verse again. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This book is came to you from God supernaturally, supernaturally. The word here translated into English, inspiration of God, is interesting because uh, it took uh, our English writers four words to describe one word in the Greek language in which the Bible is written. And that word is a compound word, it is a mouthful, but I'll do my best to give it to you. It's the word theopneustos, okay? It's two words predominantly that are put together. The first word in that compound word is the word theos. Of course, uh, that that's where we get our English word theology or, God, or study of God. So theos in Greek in the New Testament means God, okay? the second part of this of the of the compound word is the word from which we get the actual word holy spirit or pneuma or pneumatos Uh, we would use that today if some of you work uh uh, with tools particularly mechanics would know what a pneumatic drill is or a pneumatic uh, uh tool is that is a tool that is powered by what by air, you use an air compressor and you have a pneumatic nail gun or whatever the case may be. So the word itself, as it applies to the Holy Spirit, is that the, the Spirit is the wind or the breath of God. And when it comes to the Bible, here's what it means. It means that God literally breathed out His word into the minds of human authors so that they wrote down The Word of God. So what you have on paper, friend, printed in front of you, is what God said to Paul or God said to Titus or God said to this man or that man or whoever it was. That statement was God's very Word breathed out of his very heart and mind. Then, recorded down on paper. So I would actually say that the word inspiration itself literally means that the Bible is God's word recorded. And folks, this is the greatest blessing that I could ever share with you. It's to tell you that the God of the universe whose same word spoke all the world into existence, that same God took the time to speak His word into, directly into the heart and mind of man to record down on paper for all of eternity His word to us. Quite literally, when you read the Bible, you're reading God speaking to you. It is supernaturally inspired Uh, watch this it is totally inspired again the verse all scripture is given by inspiration of God that means that that bible from genesis to revelation from john 6 uh, 316 to leviticus 1611 all of it every word of it is inspired every word of it is equally inspired every bit of it is profitable every bit of it is life transforming it is the word of god all scripture is given by inspiration of god now how did god actually do this 2nd timothy chapter 1 and verse 21 tells us exactly how God did this. It says, I quote, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, watch this, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. How did God put his word down to human writers to record the Bible? The answer is, supernaturally, through the Holy Spirit, he carried along the men to accurately record the Word of God as it was given by God Himself. So, that's why the Bible uh, is such an interesting and complex and diverse book because He used multiple different human instruments with multiple different backgrounds and trainings and educations and experiences to write unique books to unique people at unique times. So, God knew that He was going to use uh, a, an academic a a scholar to challenge the Jewish world in the first century so what did he do he created a Paul and he trained that Paul And then his word came to that same guy, Paul, and then Paul was used by God to record the word of God that came through Paul to challenge all of those different churches and people that Paul wrote to. And the same could be said of Dr. Luke, uh, who wrote Luke and Acts. The same could be said of Matthew, the apostle, and uh, Mark, the associate of Peter, and Peter himself, and and John, the great apostle, and James, and others. And what did God do? He uniquely tooled and gifted and created these instruments that would write down the Bible directly from God for a message specifically to a group of people at a specific group of time, all of which now collectively applies to our lives in a powerful way. Folks, listen, when you read the Bible, you are reading what God wants you to hear from Him. You know, I've said this before at our church, and I think it bears witness. Some people are so um, non-committal to the Bible; they're looking for something else. They're looking for a word. You know, I hear people say from time to time, "You know, I've, I've got to, God. God told me something." Well, folks, listen. The only time you're ever going to hear me say God told me something is when I read the Bible, and I'll know God told me something when I open up that book because I know God said it. I don't know. I had a guy walk with me one time and said, God told me this morning I was supposed to sing at church today. And I said, well, God did not tell me that also. Folks, listen. You don't need to be, you know, heading to the shower, walking out on the farm, driving down the road, trying to get God to talk to you. That's not the way this works. You want to listen to God talk? Read the Bible. You want God to talk to you out loud? Read the Bible out loud. This is how God speaks through the Bible. And it's only now how God speaks. Number three, number three, the Bible is absolutely free from mistakes. Absolutely free from mistakes. Meaning everything the Bible records is absolutely true. We call this inerrancy. Nothing that the Bible says is wrong. Nothing that the Bible says is false. Now, the Bible plainly says this is true, uh, like in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, where it says, every word of God is pure. Every word. Uh, But also it is implied, okay, it is implied through this truth that the God who gave the word cannot lie, who is completely the truth. Whatever word he gave is absolutely and also true. Now, folks, I know that from time to time you may be a person who maybe runs across, say, a friend or a family member or a coworker who maybe doesn't share the same faith that you have and maybe from time to time might throw something up at you and say, well, I mean, you know, that Bible's filled with, with mistakes and inconsistencies. You know, the first thing I always say to somebody when they say that is very simply this, where? Where? Because most of the time... They've never read it, don't even know what they're talking about, and just heard somebody say that, that's a really good place to start. But let's just say that maybe you had something brought up to you that was confusing or not understandable. Here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you, there is an answer. There is a way. It is true. It may be that I haven't studied it yet. I haven't learned it yet. I haven't figured it out yet. It may be that for some, sometimes like, let me give you an example. Sometimes there would be things that would be questioned for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, but ultimately and finally, God proved that his word was true. Example would be archaeology in the 1800s. You know, for years and years and years and years and years, people would laugh and say, oh, come on, come on. I mean, you're telling me that, that the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho for this long and the walls just fell down flat and nobody's ever heard of Jericho, seen Jericho, found a wall like this in Jericho. That was until archaeology dug up the foundation of the walls of Jericho, proving that in fact there was a historical place Called Jericho and a historical wall that had a foundation so large it could account for the account that we find in Joshua chapter 2 and so on. Now, I am not gonna spend the rest of the night talking archaeology and trying to prove every little single place in the Bible that is true, but here is what I'm just simply gonna say. I'm gonna say that if there ever is a question about the Bible, believe me, there is an answer. And if the Bible speaks to something historically, it is true. And if the Bible speaks to something scientifically, it is true. And if the Bible speaks something theologically, it is true, because the Word has no mistake in it. You say, well, preacher, listen, I can buy it when it comes to theology, but I cannot buy it when it comes to history or science. And I would just simply tell you this, if I cannot believe Genesis 1 about creation, then I cannot believe John three sixteen about salvation. If I do not believe God created the world out of nothing, then I simply cannot believe for sure that God can save me from my sin. I'm telling you that I believe God's big enough to create the world just like he said he is I believe every miracle is true I believe every promise is true I believe every word about salvation is true God is not the author of mistakes and error and you've got a book in your lap that you can absolutely 100 percent, completely and in every way trust it is absolutely free from mistakes number four The Bible is completely sufficient. It is completely sufficient. That is, it's authority. And most people will believe that the Bible is inspired, but those same people, sadly, sometimes do not believe the Bible is sufficient. Folks, I'm not here to just tell you theologically that this is true. I'm trying to tell you that practically, if this book is what God says it is, Then I am here to tell you that for matters of faith, practice, for life and eternity, all you need is the Bible. All you need. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to reinforce this and I'll say it till I die. That in this church, there is only one thing this church really needs. And it is somebody to proclaim the word of God. And I've told you this through the coronavirus, and I'll repeat it over and over and over again. If the coronavirus taught us anything, it told us that many things in the church are dispensable. Many things in the church are negotiable. Many things in the church could come and go. Programs may be here. Children's ministries may or may not be here. Musical programs may or may not be here. Christian schools may or may not be here. Uh, extracurricular activities may or not be here. Sunday school picnics may or may not be here. Easter programs may or may not be here. But let me tell something that must always be and can always be in the church and that is the preaching and teaching of the Bible, why? Because it's all sufficient it is all sufficient, now that is true of me ministerially like I'm telling you that and I, I know that if you're here on a Wednesday night at least in a church like this you probably already believe everything that I'm saying but I'm telling you it's not just true of this preacher ministerially it is true of you personally Do you believe the Bible is sufficient? I'm saying to you that the Bible is sufficient to solve any marriage problem. The Bible is completely sufficient to explain to me the purpose for my existence on this planet. I believe the Bible is sufficient to help any man, woman, or child understand how to operate themselves financially. I believe the Bible is completely sufficient in teaching parents how to raise their children. I believe the Bible is absolutely, completely sufficient in all things, both for, listen, faith and practice. Church, listen. The Bible is infallible. That means everything the Bible teaches is completely true. It is the authority for everything that we believe, everything that we practice, everything that we need. And I'm, and I'm here to tell you tonight that, that, that those of us in the church need to believe that personally. I love that statement in Acts 17, uh, verse 11, when it says, uh, those were more noble than those in Thessalonica for that they received the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily uh, whether those things were so. You see, these people, when they came to church, came with a Bible. Why? They came with a Bible because they were making sure whatever was being said from the pulpit was being true to the Word of God. And listen, I want to tell you, uh, look, bring a Bible to church. Don't, Don't just believe everything I say. I am the most fallible person in this room. But the good news is I'm preaching a book that is not fallible. Look, there is not one stitch of authority in me. I'm telling you, some people don't understand this about pastors. Folks, I ain't no pope. People that believe in some special supernatural authority in a pastor need to be checked into an institution. The only thing that is infallible about a pastor is a message that he brings on Sunday morning and that's why when I come here to this church I'm only doing one thing when I come I'm just opening up the Bible and teaching it to the people that God has entrusted me why? because I don't want your faith to stand in the wisdom of men according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 I want it to stand in the power of God when you leave this place it shouldn't be what the pastor said when you leave this place it ought to be what God said because what God said is totally sufficient and you can believe that Folks, I'm telling you, start practicing it. Start searching whether those things be so. Start studying it for yourself and find that it is not sufficient. Fifthly, God has promised His Word will last forever. We call this preservation. Preservation. Preservation is the fact that God, who gave his word, promised and has the power to forever keep his word. Uh, Matthew tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but there will not be even listen, one jot or tittle in all the law that will pass away. Now, uh, very few of you. Uh, maybe a couple in here have studied Hebrew, but a jot and a tittle speak to the smallest Hebrew letter and the smallest marking on a Hebrew letter that gives it a, 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 a variation of meaning. And here's what Jesus is saying it's not just the sentences or the paragraphs or the chapters or the collection of it. He's saying, look, every little marking that I gave in the original language when I gave the word will never, ever, ever fade away. And do you know that while I'm standing here preaching tonight, there's no book in the history of the world that has been preserved like the Bible. Did you know that? No book. Do you know that currently, currently, there are over 5,600 ancient, extant, that word means in existence, manuscripts of the Bible in existence. 5,600, and that has... That is not even now, and I think this, I just thought of this, Aaron, the, I, this is a profound thought to me, but uh, that doesn't even account for now the fact that has all been digitalized and electronic. I mean, folks, there is zero chance that the word would ever go away. Folks, you can pull, up, you can pull it up on Google. Nobody will ever take the Bible away Heaven and earth will pass away. This earth will be incinerated and rolled up into eternity like a scroll. And God's word will still stand forever. Nobody's ever taken away the Bible. It's never going away. It's never going to fade. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 says, uh, uh, The grass uh, man shall wither like Grasp, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And i tell you, it's an extraordinary study. It's certainly out of the scope of our time tonight. But to even consider how God did this is absolutely fascinating. In short, Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 2 tells us that the Jews had the oracles or the teachings of God committed to them. Folks, this means that when the first time... Moses' pen hit that manuscript document. Now, 3,500 years later, God has kept every word he gave to Moses intact to this day. I think about how he did it. Carefully, meticulously, through centuries, through prophets, through scribes, through teachers, through kings, In fact, the Old Testament Israelite kings had to each have their own copy of the Bible, rewritten, reproduced. A scribe was a person who did nothing but copy down the Bible. Folks, for thousands of years, hundreds of years, the Bible literally was copied by hand. Anybody off the top of their head know when the Gutenberg Press was invented? I certainly don't. I think it was 15-something. What is it, Aaron? That's why, see? I love you, man. What'd you say, 14-what? 1440. If you ever wondered why I hired Aaron, now your your, your questions are gone. Because Aaron knows the exact year that the Gutenberg Press was invented. Did you know that up until that press, which you were able to mass produce printing, that means, folks, for 3,000 years, listen to this, for 3,000 years, every time that Bible was copied and reproduced, it was copied by hand. It's extraordinary. And then the Gutenberg Press comes and printing presses come and electronic digital copies come and now uh, if God could do it for 3,000 years with handwritten copies, I think God is well able to continue doing it through all the means that we have today. It's extraordinary. And then God gave it to the church, and, and, and God would write the letter through Paul, and Paul would send it out to the church of Galatia, and the church of Galatia would make copies and send it out to the churches of Laodicea, and then those copies would be made of copies, would be made of copies, would be made of copies. And, and, and amazingly, uh, 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 somebody sent in a question about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and, and it's, it is fascinating because prior. Prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, uh, basically the latest or excuse me, earliest old copy of the Bible that we had was about a thousand years after it was written. Meaning, the oldest available copy to us was written about 1000 A.D. or so. And I may have my timeline off slightly, so forgive me if I'm off a little bit. The significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as you asked, was simply this: that when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found documents that dated. Way back, almost to the time the very manuscripts were written, and this is what they found. They found that they were in their totality exactly written the same way they were written in the copies that were written a thousand years later. So what did the Dead Sea Scrolls teach us? The Dead Sea Scrolls taught us that God did, in fact, keep His Word. Folks, I'm here to tell you, you can count on this. God keeps his word it will never fade away. Okay, now I'm gonna give you the last point, but I, I've got to tie these two together because it's very important, and, and we're going somewhere with this, particularly next week when we talk about translations. But I want you you gotta listen to this, and I gotta tie these together because some of you have been frankly misinformed, so you need to listen very carefully. Number six, God has graciously provided His world His word to many people groups in the world. You know what we call that? Translation. Translation. What is a Bible translation? The answer is, it is God's Word given in another language. Okay? So, if I were to ask you this question, class, what languages were the Bible originally written in? Somebody tell me. Greek and Hebrew, and I think some Aramaic in the book of Daniel, I think. I, I, I've just heard that. I don't know that. Uh, I think that's true. Um, predominantly, of course, Hebrew and Greek, Old Testament in ancient Hebrew, New Testament in what was called Koine, uh, Greek, okay? So, obviously, very few people in this room speak any of that or can even understand any of that, okay? I can understand a little bit of it, okay? Thank God the Lord for Bible software, okay? And, and the last time I took a Greek class was in 2001, and it was great, it did well, but um, uh, anyways, I don't exactly carry around a Greek New Testament with me, so here's what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for translation, What does that mean? That means the Bible that was originally given in Hebrew and Greek has been translated into multiple other languages. In fact, of the 6,000 languages roughly in the world today, about half of them, just less than half of them, actually have a copy of God's Word. That's good and it's terribly bad. It's good because like 2,600 languages have a Bible. It's bad because like 3,400 languages don't have a Bible. Many of them are going to be tribal dialects in places like China and other places. And no matter how you cut it, it's sad. Let me me say that. Let me run that back for those of you that have a Bible that never read it. So let me me run that one back. There are 3,400 people groups in the world that have never read John 3.16. Not one time. And yours collects dust between Sundays. Somebody help me up here. Okay, we are Bible-saturated, Bible-stuffed, and Bible-sick. So, but here's the key. You got to understand, there's a difference. Listen to me, and please don't misunderstand me, and don't misquote me, and don't miss what I'm getting ready to say because it's critical. Preservation and translation are not the same thing. Okay? Okay? Very important you understand that. Preservation and translation are not the same thing, okay? We can have translation because of preservation. But translation is not the same thing as preservation. Okay, so let me explain this to you, okay? There are many people that believe that God has preserved the Bible, specifically in a translation of the Bible. And, and the most people that believe this are, frankly, English-speaking people. And when they say that, they're talking particularly about one translation of the Bible, the King James one, the one I'm preaching from. Okay? This is a very common belief. It is a, a, a widely accepted belief. Um, and they say things like this. The Bible has been preserved in this particular translation. Now, let me tell you why that's a mistake to say that. Okay, hope everybody's following me so far. The reason I was a mistake to say that is because if preservation is a promise of God, follow me now. If preservation is a promise of God, and 3,400 languages in the world do not have a translation. Then that means God broke his promise. How can God keep his promise that people groups in China who do not have a Bible still have a preserved Bible? And the answer is because if somebody would surrender their life to God who knew Hebrew and knew Greek. They could go to China and learn that language and take what they know about Hebrew and Greek from the Bible and put that into that language. Why? Because God has kept his word, okay? We are just fortunate that in our world, in our language, God has graciously allowed us to have a Bible. if we were going to translate the bible into one of those said 3400 languages let me tell you what we would not do we would not use an english bible and translate it into chinese or whatever that would not be right because translation is not preservation what we would do is we would take hebrew and Greek, and translate it directly into the vernacular of that particular people group. That is translation. Now, now I want to bridge into translation and I want to say a few things about translation and what's your appetite for next week. Okay? Here's what I want to say about translation. When we talk about translations in general there are two important things that are brought up. Okay? One is about the Way in which the Bible was translated. Okay, there are two ways that people translate the Bible. One is called formal equivalency or word-for-word word equivalency, which by the way, how many of you understand this? If you're a linguist at all, I mean, if you are like first, if you have had first grade Spanish one. I don't know if there is such a thing, but let's just say you know that there's no such thing as exact word-for-word translation completely through an entire language. It's just not there. It's not possible. But when I say word-for-word, what I mean is this, that the purpose of the translator was to give in that language as close to the word as it was originally given, okay? That's called formal equivalence. So when we use an American English translation, we want to use one that was Word for word. Why? Because we believe in every word of God. That's why. Man should not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word. I'm not looking for the thoughts of God. I'm not looking for the heart of God. I'm looking for the word of God. So it's important. So it's word for word in translation. The second thing that people look at typically in translation, and there is some debate about this, and and you'll have to decide for yourself what is true about this, but uh, there are typically manuscript families that are spoken of, meaning that in all of the 5,000 plus manuscripts that live or exist today, uh, the vast majority of them come from two different family of manuscripts, meaning two different groups, or uh, maybe a better way to say it's two different origins of manuscripts, manuscripts that primarily come from the area called Byzantine, which would be where the New Testament churches were, up in Asia Minor, up in Europe, etc. And then the other line or family manuscripts would prim- primarily be Antiochian, or not, that's, that's the wrong word, um, Alexandrian, or from a different origin. Now, again, if I were to take all these, so I don't want to confuse anybody, I don't want to get too deep here. Okay, if I were to take all of them, okay, all 5,600 from any family in the whole world, and put them together, there is very little difference in all of them. Okay, very little. I mean, minutely. And I don't have all the stats, but it's very low. But many people believe that the ones that were closest to the churches, the Byzantine family, would be the closest representation of what God originally gave. And if there were discrepancies between the two families, they would choose that one because of origin. Okay? Now, when I put those two things together in English, there are multiple different translations that fit into that paradigm okay the King James version of the Bible certainly uh, historically. I mean, churches have used it. For In fact, I was listening to a sermon today from First Baptist Church in Jacksonville from, it must have been in the early 1990s. Jerry Bynes was there preaching, and he was preaching from the King James Version of the Bible way back then, and, and it was a great message. It was awesome, and, and churches for years and years and years have predominantly used that version of the Bible. It's a literal translation of the Bible. It is a fantastic translation of the Bible. Every single verse in the Bible that I have memorized, which is thousands, is out of the King James Version of the Bible. It's a great translation. Nobody would, zero argument there. It's awesome, okay? But there are also a few other translations that are from the same kind of family and the same kind of philosophy, like the new King James Version of the Bible, or uh, from a different family of manuscripts, like the English Standard Version of the Bible, but they're all from the same philosophical bent, meaning they all come from a literal word for word philosophy of translation, meaning the heart of the philosophers was to or the the translators was to give the Bible to the people okay, in in a language, in a vernacular that they could understand. Now, for those of you who are King James, you know, you've been, you've been around, The King James has been the, the version of the Bible of your choice for years and years and years, you probably know what I'm getting ready to tell you, but it is worth telling you this, <clears throat> that when the King James translation was translated originally in the year 1611, and then of course went through multiple revisions into like 1769 or something like that, you all know that the purpose of that Bible, the purpose of that Bible was to give the people a Bible they could understand in their vernacular at their time. Does everybody understand that? So if you lived in England in 1611 all the way to 1700, you would have spoke much like that translation of the Bible right you would have said uh you would say like we say in weddings who giveth this woman to marry this man i still can't figure out why i say that today because it's the only time i ever use giveth in a normal conversation and i use it in weddings so anyways uh, but you you know we don't normally we don't talk like that we would say gives right Uh, i don't say mona thou art my favorite person in church now I might say, Mona, you are my favorite person in church. And that's really close to true. If not true, okay. But I don't say, Mona, thou art the, the, you know, the favorite person in church. I don't say that because you today don't say thou, you say you. Is everybody with me here? Okay. So, so the point I'm making with translation is that the point of translation is to provide the Bible into languages of the people of the world, particularly languages that they can understand. So what I need you to understand, okay, about our church is that our church uh, would not believe, okay, that one translation of the Bible, particularly a translation that was given several hundred years ago, is the only translation that people would use or believe or would even be spoken of from the church, okay? And you need to understand the heart behind it so that you can understand uh, why we would do what we do. For instance, there's already been, and will continue to be, guest speakers that might come uh, through. And we were supposed to have H.P. Charles, but there was a funeral they had to go to in Seattle just a couple weeks ago. And if he would have come, he would have used a different translation of the Bible, and it's okay. Um, There are uh, people right here in the auditorium, guaranteed, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or hold up your Bible, but I know that right here in this room there are people that you have different translations of the Bible, and it's Okay. And if I to ever speak from a different translation of the Bible, according to what I just described, listen, it would be okay. Amen. It would be okay. Now, I said all that to say, come back next week, come back, because next week I do want to talk about this question, okay? I want to talk about this next week, and that is this understandest thou what thou readest that's the title of the lesson next week understandest thou what thou readest okay now i know you've got all these other blanks here on your paper i think i'm not even going there tonight okay and i'll tell you why because I've said a lot of that already tonight. It's what the Bible does in our lives. It transforms us and all that. And I'll, I'll have Aaron email at the whole church the filled in blanks because I'm a college professor and I know how important filling in the blanks is. <laughs> but here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna formally pray, dismiss, but I'm gonna stand right here as long as you would ever wanna stand here and talk. If you got a question, please uh, come, let's talk. And I want you to know this. What I'm sharing with our church as a whole Tonight has already been shared with our church leaders, um, deacons, pastors, many of our uh, men in our church, and uh, all of them have appreciated and been on board with what has been taught and said. So, let's uh, let's pray, and then I'll be here uh, if uh, you got any questions. Okay, Lord, we love you. We pray that you will uh, bless tonight, that you'll bless uh, where we're. Uh, understanding of the Bible and what it means and, and, uh, Lord, how we today should listen to it, read it, follow it, obey it, seek to understand it and live it every day of our lives. We love you for these things. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you guys. Everybody joined us online. We'll see you next Wednesday night at seven. Of course, Sunday morning at 930. You are dismissed.